You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Richard Holm, or Dick Holm, as most of us know him. Uh, Dick is a retired CIA officer. Uh, He had a very distinguished career and was recognized as such by the embassy, served in some uh, seven countries during his tours abroad, served in a variety of capacities as a paramilitary officer, as a foreign intelligence collector, uh, and of course uh, as a diplomat, as it were. Uh, The occasion of our interview is the publication of Dick's book, The Craft We Chose, by Richard Holm, My Life in the CIA. Uh, Dick has written a book previously. This is considerably expanded with new material, and so we thought this would be a great occasion to talk to Dick. This will be the first of a two-part conversation with Dick. Dick, we're glad to have you with us. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Dick, let me start out by asking you, why did you write this book? I think if you, um, if you go back to some of the basics, um, like it or not, and some people don't, uh, we live in, in the only superpower in the world. Um, as a superpower, um, we're obliged to, to be able to know what's going on. We can't function blind or, or deaf. So we need intelligence. We need information about what's happening in the world. Thus, we need an intelligence community and a clandestine service to collect that. Um, I, I would further argue that what the public writ large knows about intelligence, about the CIA, about the clandestine service in particular, is gleaned mostly from the media. Um, take another step, I think most of that is distorted, inaccurate, ill-informed, sometimes even hostile. And so they just don't know sort of the real story of what the clandestine service is all about. One of the things that, that comes through in the book is uh, both the variety of your tours, in, in both in South Asia, in Africa, in Europe, uh, including a good deal of travel, and you went through a variety of posts 
uh, with growing responsibilities at a rather young age. Do you think that's still possible? Is that, that certainly doesn't seem typical to me in the clandestine service. Well, I, I, I've never sort of looked at it that way. I mean, I, I joined when I was in my middle 20s, and, and I just worked my way up through the ranks. Uh, as you say, gaining experience and assuming more and more responsibility along the way. And uh, I, I, it never occurred to me that I was too young for anything. I just uh, took them as they came, so to speak. And I always felt delighted to, to, be, to advance to another. It's, it's really much more fun when you have more responsibility and you're, you're involved in some of the more critical and sensitive efforts that we do. Dick, you know, one of the things that I think uh, so many of us uh, know about you is this extraordinary experience you had uh, when you were posted to Stanleyville. And uh, you were, well, I'll let you tell the story, uh, but it, an incident occurred uh, that I think marked your career at that period. Uh, but it also, I think, tells a lot a bit about your both dedication to the agency and the agency's own support. I wonder if you could just summarize that story for us to some extent. Sure. When I, I finished what, what was called a paramilitary tour in Laos, young, single, spoke some French. I got back to headquarters, and I was a prime candidate to go to Stanleyville and reopen a base that had been closed because the city of Stanleyville was overrun by a group they called the Simbas. Um, the Belgian paratroopers were dropped in from our planes uh, on just about Thanksgiving Day in 1965, and they liberated the city, uh, dispersed the Simbas. About 25, 27 people were killed, but uh, that was there's nothing that could have been done about that. They had to go in is what the, the decision taken. The next week, uh, I went in. Um, my, my mission was to reestablish contact with our agents in the Northeast Congo, which is, by the way, the size of France. I mean, it's just an enormous country. Uh, but in the Northeast Quadrant is where I was working and where I was trying to make contact. This would have been at what time? The December of 65. 65. Um, I, I made a couple trips. I landed, of course, in Leopoldville, the capital, now called Kinshasa. And uh, I made a couple trips up to Stanleyville. No success. I mean, the, the population had been dispersed into the villages and jungle you know, because of the Simba control. And so I was having a hard time making any contact. Then I went over to a place called Bunya, which is right on the Uganda border, not far from the Sudanese border. And uh, I, I decided it would be useful to find out where and how the rebels were getting resupplies of weapons and ammunition and what they needed, logistics. And we suspected it was coming in by truck from the Sudan. So I went up in an airplane in a T-28 um, to see, uh, overfly the border and see if I could discover you know, where, what they were doing, how they were using it. Now, you know, that I had had a lot of experience in Laos flying over jungle areas, and I, I felt that I, could, I, could be, I would be able to spot something. Um, shortly after we got started, um, we were along the border, and we ran into an enormous storm. And the storm threw us off course. Um, there were only two airports in the whole northeast Congo that could handle that kind of an airplane. So long story short, we had to crash land. 
Um, we were both wearing parachutes. I would have been delighted to jump. The pilot wouldn't hear of it. I later found out that most pilots, if the wings don't fall off or if the thing's not on fire, they will not jump out of an airplane. They just, they just don't do it. So we crash landed in the crash. Um, we were skidding on a, on a clearing that wasn't as big as we had hoped it would be and ran into a tree. The, the wing broke and I got a splash of ignited fuel across my left uh, head and shoulders. Uh, that startled me, of course, and uh, I was barely able to get out of the plane. I was wearing a parachute and I, had, I couldn't use my hands, so I had to climb with my elbows and roll off the wing and, and we were just getting away when the, when the plane essentially blew up because of the uh, fuel. We spent the night in the jungle as far away as we could get, which wasn't very far because I was in dire straits. Uh, the next day the pilot um, left me by a stream. I couldn't really walk and I couldn't see because my eyes had been singed, closed. And um, he walked around for a day and then he came back and then he walked around the next day and he ran into some villagers. Happily they were, um, they were ready to help us because they were anti-Simba long story, they're from the Azande tribe and their tribe had been abused by them. But they in effect uh, agreed to help him walk and ride a bike at night out to the nearest safe area, uh, which they did. In the meantime, they left me in the, in, in the village or near the village. They hid me outside the village so that the Simbas wouldn't find me and then punished the whole village. Uh, and they they stood me up and cleaned out all the bugs and things from my burns and smeared a, a salve made of snake fat and herbs and tree bark and I don't know what. It effectively saved my life. I mean, there's no question about that. It, uh, it kept fluids in the body and infections out of the body, and that's how you die from burns, dehydration and infection. Um, about 10 days later, they, they were, got to a Belgian outpost in a place called Paulus. Um, they came back in a helicopter to get me. Had trouble finding it because the you know the chief had never been in, any, in an airplane before. I, I mean, he was in a uh, helicopter, and that uh, they did find the area. It was marked. Then the, the villagers ran and put out my parachute to tell them that it was the right place. And uh, the engine failed, <laughs> so that helicopter made a very rough sort of a crash landing. Um, it was too late in the day to, to get me then, so they went back to Paulus. The next day returned and, uh, and got me out of there. So. And from there, the word flashed around. They, um, they quickly um, sent a C-130 up from Leopoldville and I was transferred from the helicopter into the C-130 and then down to Leopoldville where a 707 was waiting from McGuire Air Force Base and I was flown straight to the burn center in Texas. Um, story I got was that our, the director of, of the operations, Dick Helms, at that time it was called Plans, went to McCone and said, we have an officer in trouble in the Congo. We need him to be brought back as soon as possible. And he said, okay, I'll call McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense. He did, McNamara said, is he alive? Yes, he's alive. We'll go get him, and they did. You know, it's a, and you could you could hardly ask for more, more support than that. I mean, I don't know 
how many countries in the world would go to the trouble and expense uh, for one very junior young officer as, as our country did for me. It's pretty. Roughly how long a period of, of, of rehabilitation were you in, were you hospitalized for? Right at two years, three dozen operations. Um, it, it was, a, had I known at the time it was going to take that long, I don't know what I would have done, but uh, I just tried to take it a day at a time and an operation at a time. I'd recover, I'd get back some strength, and then we'd do another one. I'd recover, I'd get back some strength. But you were able to rejoin to continue your, your career in the clandestine service and go on to other stations. I remember one of the things that struck you that comes out in the book is while you were in the hospital, you were visited personally by the then director, uh, Ambassador Helms. Yep. The, um, the crash ruined my jump shot, which I lament. I lamented at the time a lot. You were a basketball was, player. That's one yeah. thing. And then, you know, my cover was ruined when Dick Helms came to visit me at the hospital, and uh, the nurses were all at Twitter. I said, oh, my God, he's not a State Department officer at all. You know, he's a... But, but it was another sign of, of just how far they would go. And when I finally needed an operation on my eye, um, the agency got the best surgeon in the country for, for a corneal transplant effort, and, and, uh, and he, he did it, and it worked. Uh, just a footnote, uh, my recollection is, I think you say in the book, that the, uh, uh, the folks back here uh, in the American medical system tried to analyze the salve that had saved your life. And uh, in the end, they weren't able to reach the sort of, they didn't know exactly what it well, was, but it clearly saved your life. The, oh, no, no question, and they knew that. And the Burn Center actually sent two doctors to the Congo to try to get samples of this stuff. And that's where I understood that it became, it was, it was part snake fat and boiled herbs and tree bark. It was a mixture. I don't think they were able to really reproduce it, but it clearly changed their um, methods for treating serious burns. Because as I say, normally, I mean, people can be burned in their living room, you know, and go to the hospital and yet die because of infection or dehydration. And I'd been lying on, a, on the ground in the jungle for 10 days when uh, then I... Survived. It was an extraordinary experience, and you, you certainly describe it very vividly and give a great deal of credit both to the, the people in the village as well as the, as well as the Belgians who no uh, eventually got you out. No you spent uh, most of your career in East Asia Division, didn't you? Uh, actually, um, I spent f from 61, of course, when I started, I volunteered to go to Laos, and I went to Laos. And then I went to the Congo, and then I went to Walter Reed, and then I went back. So from about 67 till 70, till 67 to 81, I was an EA officer. But from 81 onward, um, I was either, e, I was EUR, basically, I, uh, and, and headquarters based. I was in congressional liaison for a short period. I was head of the counterterrorism office for a period. And then I went to Belgium, and then I went to Paris. So. It's almost half and half. The, la the latter part was largely uh, EUR. But I wonder in that period when you were in East Asia Division, to what extent did China loom as a, as a place of great interest? Enormous extent. Uh, when, I, when I was leaving Walter Reed, um, my, my decision, I, you know, I was welcomed back into the agency and I was happy to go back. And I was invited to go back to EA because they knew and liked me and that was all right. But also I was thinking I want to get as far away from Africa Division as possible. 
and China seemed a good idea. Um, I knew that China was a developing area and a, and a priority target uh, from our collection perspective. So I wanted to do that. And I, I actually started studying Mandarin uh, at, in Walter Reed and then came back to work, studied Mandarin, and then went to Hong Kong, uh, where, where they speak Cantonese. <laughs> But also, a lot of them do speak Mandarin. So, have you had a chance to visit Hong Kong as it is today to contrast it with your experience there as a um, station officer? My last visit was right at the time that they were changing the flag from British to Chinese in '97. Um, I went there as a tourist. Uh, I had retired a year late, year earlier, and I went back. And I mean, Hong Kong, dynamic, active city. Um, and my at the time, I was I told people I thought. Hong Kong would change China before China changed Hong Kong because the, the economic activity and the entrepreneurial instincts of those people is such that they're not going to be denied. And, they, they and that's still a very active, very interesting city to be in, no question about it. You know, it, 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 often in the agency, the, 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 the China target uh, was compared to the Soviet target, and they were both considered hard targets, very difficult to work against. Did right. you find that the case? No question. Yeah, no question. We were, the bamboo curtain was every bit as difficult to penetrate as the iron curtain in Europe was. Um, and there was, there was within the agency, there was sort of a friendly competition between people working on the Soviet target and people working on the China target, and we, but both were considered, as you say, hard targets, and both demanded highest levels of tradecraft and, and counterintelligence and security efforts. Again, I'm talking to Dick Holm, author of The Craft We Chose, his career in CIA and intelligence, and we will be returning with part two of this conversation. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum dot org. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.